One of the best tips I could give is to just, again, focus on your thoughts and to recognize when you're doubting yourself, when you have these thoughts that aren't helpful and to figure out that you're stronger than you think. Sometimes you have to challenge your thinking. How do you challenge your brain? So when your brain says you can't do this, go ahead and try it anyway. Are you ready to realize the true potential in your life and help others do the same? Get equipped to create a thriving future with the Secrets of Success podcast. Inspire others to live, lead, and work on purpose and experience the joy of watching satisfaction and productivity come to life. And now here's your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. Have you ever wondered what it takes to be mentally strong or mentally tough, to really have resilience, to have fortitude, whatever that might be? Well, today's guest is going to share from her book 13 different things you don't want to do so that you can be mentally tough. Welcome to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. So today we have Amy Morin, who is the author of 13 Things mentally strong people don't do. Amy, welcome to the show. Thanks for having me. Well, it's a pleasure and it's always uh, kind to have experts like yourself take your most valuable commodity time and spend it with our listeners. So Amy, as we do in pretty well all of our shows, you know, we'll get into your body of work and your expertise here in a moment, but I really like we really like to have the story of, you know, where did Amy come from? Where was she born? And just sort of your journey to move into the space of helping other people. So let's start right at the beginning, sort of your heritage, your family, and uh, where you grew up. Sure. So I, I grew up in a little town called Dexter, Maine, and had an older sister and lived with both of my parents, had a really wonderful childhood in the, the rural woods of, of Maine and had lots of fun outdoor time. We didn't have social media and stuff like that back then, and I'm so grateful for it. And I grew up with parents who both worked for the post office, and yet they were really loving and giving people who uh, – in small town America. So they always were generous and helpful mm -hmm. to everybody. And I think that's part of what inspired both my sister and I later in life to, to go into helping professions. And initially I wanted to be a doctor. I was a pre-med student, but everybody else in my classes were really excited about dissecting animals. And it occurred to me, I wasn't all that excited about it. And so mm -hmm. I thought, so dissecting you know, people might be like lower on the list then. Exactly. And so I thought, you know, if I'm not that excited about it, perhaps I'm just more in love with the idea of being a doctor than actually being one. And so I changed my major. I said, all right, I'm going to go into social work. And my sister actually had gone into the same field and decided that I'd go on to graduate school. And I thought, all right, for me, it's really about helping people from the neck up rather than focusing on the body. I'm going to focus mm -hmm. on the mind and launched a career as a therapist after I graduated. And I thought, this is great. How wonderful that I get to sit down and, and meet with people and I get to hear their stories and I get to help them problem solve. I get to help them overcome things like depression and anxiety. This is wonderful. I get to teach other people how to be mentally strong. And shortly after I had started my career, uh, my mother passed away suddenly from a brain aneurysm. Mm. And she and I had been super close. And so it was sort of the first big loss in my life. And it really occurred to me, okay, my job isn't necessarily about teaching other people how to be mentally strong. I also need to figure out how do I use this stuff for myself. I had seen people who would lose somebody or go through something difficult. And maybe 20 years later, they felt like they, they were still stuck. And I thought, okay, I don't want that to happen to me. 
how do I grieve in a way that's helpful? How do I make sure that I move forward so that I don't feel like like I'm never really able to have joy and happiness in life again? And so that was where my journey with mental strength started to become personal. Oh, and then, now, Amy, if I may ask, yeah. uh, how old were you when, when your, your mother passed? I was 23. So really quite young and really still... Uh, connected to your mom and just uh, nurturing and having those conversations probably weekly. Yeah, there were so many things I still imagined that she would be there for. And I thought, you know, even though I'm an adult, it just didn't seem right. Uh, I was married. I had gotten married young. And so I was already married. I had a house. And I thought, all right, I've got some good things going on. But uh, we'd become foster parents and we were planning to adopt. And I thought, oh, how my mother would have loved to have become a grandmother. Mm. And there's so many other things that I just thought, you know, I had imagined my mother would be there for in life. And not having her, it was really just a, a matter of figuring out how do I create a new sense of normal. And my parents had been married since my father was 18 and my and my father was 19 and my mother was 18. Wow. And so then to see my dad alone, it was, it was difficult too. Uh, you know, he w- wasn't used to being on his own. So to see him widowed and into figuring out as the adult child, what's my role? How do I fit into this? And, but I worked really hard. It took years to finally feel like, okay, I'm developing sort of this new sense of normal. How do I live without my mom in my life? And on the three-year anniversary of when my mother died, my 26-year-old husband died of a heart attack. Wow. He didn't have any history of heart problems. He didn't have any health issues. And so very similar to the way that my mother had passed away, it was sudden and completely unexpected. And I had to figure out, now what do I do? I'm a 26-year-old widow and I don't have my mom. And I was working as a therapist and I thought, how on earth do I help other people with their problems and my life is upside down? And so I took as much time off from work as I could, but I couldn't stay out of work forever. I was down to one income. Um, but it was during that time, too, that I'd really started to figure out, well, mental strength, it's not always about what people do. Sometimes it's about what they don't do. Mm-hmm. And over the years, and as a therapist, I'd seen that sometimes the most resilient people just didn't do certain things. And so after losing him, it was about not just developing good habits, but it was also about giving up potential bad habits. And it took a long, long time to uh, feel like, okay, how do I how do I move forward in a way that's healthy and productive? How do I build a new life for myself? Uh, and a few years later, I was fortunate to get remarried. And uh, shortly after that, however, my father-in-law was diagnosed with terminal cancer. And I thought, oh, why does why does one good thing happen and then this happens? Why do I have to lose somebody else? I don't want to go through this again. And Unlike when I lost my mother and my husband, it was sudden and unexpected, but this time I knew what was coming. The doctors had told us that my father-in-law may have a couple of months, perhaps a couple of weeks left. And I thought, all right, this isn't fair. I didn't want to go through this and was sort of hosting a pity party at that point. And then I I realized that's not helpful. It's not helpful to feel sorry for myself if my father-in-law has a limited amount of time left. I don't want to think I spent it feeling sorry for myself. So... I sat down and I wrote a list of all the things mentally strong people don't do. And when I was done, I had a list of 13 things. And I published it online thinking, well, if it's helpful for me, maybe it will help somebody else. And 
never imagined that that list would go viral, but it did. It was read by more than 50 million people at this point. Wow, and isn't that amazing? Congratulations, Amy, <laughs> for having you. that kind of impact. You know, it's interesting when we come from the heart, when we become real, how people really connect to that authenticity. Absolutely. I had written articles for years. It had sort of become my side hustle as a way to earn extra money after my husband had passed away. And I wrote a lot of really clinical articles about mental health and depression and anxiety and that sort of a thing. But this one was different. It was really the first one that was from the heart. And I didn't explain the story. I just basically had the list. But it was really... Uh, it was different from a lot of the other. It wasn't um, filled with research studies and that sort of a thing like a lot of my other articles were. Uh, and then it definitely was the first one that ever resonated and took off like that and certainly changed the course of my career at that point. Well, thank you for that. Now, one of the things I want the learner or the learners, the listeners, which are also learners, by the way, is to know is that you have actually one of the top YouTube or TEDx YouTubes uh, out there as far as the views, right? So you're over 6 million views on your TEDx uh, talk. So what does that talk about? Yeah, so I was fortunate to be invited to give a TEDx talk. And so it's about the secret of becoming mentally strong. And so I share a little bit about my story and uh, interweave the 13 things mentally strong people don't do in there. But I talk about our core beliefs about ourselves and other people in the world in general and how to create positive change in your life. And I'm so excited that so many people have watched that video. And, and that's amazing. It's funny, you know, we all want something to go viral and you have. So sometimes we sort of pinch ourselves when it does, don't we? Yeah, people ask me all the time, how do you get something to go viral? Well, there isn't a secret formula or anything like that. There isn't a button that you push or anything. I think it takes a bunch of different things. I think a, a good title, a good headline combined with um, a little bit of luck. You need some influential people to share it and talk about it. Um, but to just, you know, when you put things that are heartfelt out there, I think it definitely resonates with people. Mm, awesome. Well, let's make that as a transition, Amy, that you really your life, uh, you've, you've embraced sort of the situation to be able to create information for others to benefit from. And that's the purpose of this show is to give people ideas, thoughts, uh, things to do or not do. So let's talk about you and you can lead the way here. Other, we can go into the belief side that you were talking about or we can go into the 13 things. So which would you prefer? Uh, let's talk about some of the 13 things. Okay, well, let's go through it. Well, number one on my list was that mentally strong people don't waste time feeling sorry for themselves. And once you knew my story, you know why that was the first thing on my list. I was stuck right there. And to be clear, there's a big difference between feeling sorry for yourself and just being sad. It's healthy to be sad. It's healthy to grieve. But when you feel sorry for yourself, it's when you start to exaggerate your misfortune when you're thinking my problems are so bad and there's no possible solution and you start to dig in your heels and when we do that it prevents us from making life better mm. and but it's so tempting to do where we just kind of want to throw up our hands and say you know this isn't fair but it's not productive to do that in any way shape or form it doesn't help so what would you say to the listeners where some people are feeling sorry for themselves how do they release that uh, sort of mindset or burden or excuse, whatever verb we want to use? Well, I think it's important to identify just something you can do to make your life or somebody else's life better. And 
sometimes you can't solve the problem. If a family member has a health issue or you're going through something and you can't necessarily solve it, it doesn't mean that you can't still take some sort of positive action. And and to identify what that what that might be and to go out there and do it even when you don't feel like it. Cause sometimes I think we do the opposite. We think, okay, when I feel better, I'll do that. But sometimes the way to get better is to go out and do it first and then the feelings sort of follow. And one of the best examples I can give is when we were approaching what would have been my husband's 27th birthday after he had passed away. And I thought, what am I going to do that day? I don't want to go to work. But if I don't go to work, I'm just going to sit at home and stare at the walls. And that's not particularly helpful either. And so I talked to his mother and I said, what do you think? What are you going to do that day? And she said to me, what do you think about skydiving? And this is a woman who was in her mid-50s at the time and not somebody who was particularly adventurous, but my husband had been. And she said, you know, let's go out and do something. Let's turn it into something that would be helpful for us. And so we did. We went skydiving. Cool. And every year since then on his birthday, we find something to do and it's turned into something bigger. Friends and family take part. But we just say, you know, how do we celebrate his life rather than sit around and feel sorry for ourselves? And it's really it's just become a day that we look forward to. And it's been really helpful to healing. Great, great. What well, great insight on that. So don't feel sorry. Then number two. Um, that mentally strong people don't give away their power. And that one's really about just saying, okay, nobody's in control of how I think, feel, or behave. It's up to me to decide. So even if you have somebody who criticizes you, you don't have to let it feel, you don't have to feel bad about yourself. Or if somebody says, your boss says, here's a project, I want you to do it, and you tell yourself, oh, I have to do this, then you give away your power. You don't have to do anything. And th there's definitely consequences if you don't, but just acknowledging this is a choice can be a wonderful way to take back your power. And it really reframes the way that you look at life is to know, okay, I'm going to work tomorrow and that's a choice. I'm going to my in-laws for dinner. It's a choice. And when you recognize, okay, I, I have that power. I have that control. It's up to me to create whatever kind of life I want to live. You can accomplish some pretty incredible things. Uh, agreed. Where... Really, you're taking responsibility for the space that you're in and, and the choices you've made. So thank you for that, Amy. Number three. It's that mentally strong people don't shy away from change. And I think sometimes we're just afraid, okay, I'm not happy with where I am right now, but what if I make things worse? Or And there's no guarantee that doing something different will make your life better. And as a therapist, I see plenty of people who will say, okay, life is bad, but at least it's predictable. At least I know what to expect. If I go out and do anything different, what if I make things worse? What if it doesn't get any better? But obviously change can, can be positive. And when we take a step in a new direction, we do something different. You can improve your life, but until you are willing to take that step, you'll never know. So how, if, if I've sort of been frozen, if I'm an individual who hasn't had a lot of change, what, what would you coach or counsel me as far as to be able to take that first step? How can you help me with that? Well, sometimes for people who are feel like, okay, I can't, just can't make my feet move, sometimes it's helpful to say, okay, let's, let's make a list of what are the pros and cons of making a change. But then on the back of that piece of paper, let's write down what are the pros and cons of not making that change. Mm. And sometimes that can just open people's eyes to say, okay, there's definitely a potential consequence of making a change, but I'm also taking a risk by not doing anything different. And sometimes that helps people find a little more courage to move forward. 
Mm. Well, one of the questions sometimes, Amy, we use in our workshops here is, if nothing changed in the next five years, would that be okay? Yes. <laughs> so you say five years from now, nothing has changed. You're no better, nothing. You haven't learned anything. You haven't done anything new. You'd say, well, that's not okay. Well, then what does that infer? I think that's a great question because I think for a lot of people that really opens their eyes to thinking, oh, yeah, if I don't change, my life isn't going to change on its own. Right. And, and most people do want to have something different or improved results. So thank you for that, Amy. Number four. So mentally strong people don't fo focus on things they can't control. I think there's so many things in life that we, we can't control. You can't control how other people feel, how other people behave. Uh, you can't necessarily control anything from the economy to, to what the weather is going to be. Yet it's so easy to waste time worrying about those things. Mm. So, but when you do that, you just waste your time and you waste your energy. And those are finite resources. You want to invest all your time and energy to the things that you can control. And sometimes it's scary for people to admit, yeah, I have no control over that. But at the same time, when you do, it frees you up to focus on things that are much more important. How would if I, if I and uh, it's interesting because if you know as we do different work uh, in different spaces where people get fixated on some of these things they can't control as a therapist but also a coach, what would you say to me about me getting rid of this fixation and then moving off of a fixation of something like that? What would be some things you might coach me on to do? So I, first, it might be a matter of just recognizing what do you have control over. So you can be a great salesperson, but you can't necessarily control how many people buy a product from you. Or you might be able to do a great job in an interview, but it doesn't mean that you're going to get hired. So sometimes it's just recognizing what do you have control over, and that's usually your own behavior. And then it's a matter of thinking, okay, well, what do I get out of worrying about things I can't control. Maybe it's a distraction from the things that you can control. I see a lot of people will say, you know, I worry about my my in-laws, I worry about my spouse, I worry about all these things, and it's just really an excuse to not focus on their own life. So sometimes just looking at, okay, what are you gaining from this? And then to say, well, what could you gain if you focused on the things that you did control? And that can just open up their awareness a little bit about how making that shift in their head could, could change their life. So reframing is a, an important piece. Absolutely is. Okay, very good. Thanks, Amy. Number five. Is that they don't fear taking calculated, well, I'm on number six. I jumped ahead. That they don't worry about pleasing everyone. Mm. I work with a lot of people who think that they're going to make somebody else happy. And so they go to ends of the earth thinking, okay, now this person will like me or now this person will, I'll win favor with this person. But it doesn't work like that. You don't know how other people feel. And it's not your responsibility to make other people happy. I worked with this woman one time who was really frustrated because everybody around her was getting promoted. And she wasn't. And she said, I'm doing everything anybody ever asks about from me. If they say jump, I say how high. And so I encouraged her to just go ahead and ask her, her supervisor, how come I don't get promoted? And to her surprise, he said, it's because you don't have a backbone. You can't say no to anybody. I can't make you a leader in the position if you can't say no to people. So she came into therapy and she said, I can't believe it. All these years I thought I was pleasing my boss, but really I was making it so my boss thought I, I didn't deserve a leadership position. And it's interesting even in our work too around purpose. You can't really fulfill who you are if you're listening to everybody else's opinions. Right. It's so important to know when to say no and that it's okay and that if other people aren't happy with you, that that's okay too and learning how to tolerate that and that's key to being mentally strong. Thank you, Amy. Number six. Number six is that they don't fear taking calculated risks. 
And I think for a lot of us, it's difficult to calculate risk. We don't know how. You can calculate statistics when it comes to the lottery, but how do you know if you should give this presentation or if you should apply for a promotion or if you should make that phone call? And so it's we tend to judge it by our feelings. So if something feels scary, we think it's too risky, I can't do it. But our emotions have nothing to do with that actual level of risk. So a big mm. part of this one is just recognizing. I'm going to stop you there, Amy. I'm yeah. That, that was a gem right there. <laughs> Sorry. You were, so our emotions have nothing to do with the risk. Just delve into that statement just a little bit, please. Well, if we take, say, public speaking, for example, for a lot of people, it feels really scary. So people think, I can't do it. It's too risky. But then when you think about it, there's not really any much of a risk involved in giving a, giving a talk in front of a group of people. And so the amount of people who would jump on a plane, get in a car, and go somewhere, but then not get on the stage, and you think, well, it's far riskier. You're risking your life by stepping in a car and going somewhere. But then at the same time, you stand up on the stage, nobody's going to rush the stage and, and kill you. But yet we treat it as if it's life or death sometimes. And our anxiety meters get kind of faulty, I think. In today's world, we don't face hungry lions in the jungle anymore. But yet we still experience... Mm anxiety and panic over things that aren't actually risky. And so it's so important for us to just recognize, okay, just because I feel anxious doesn't mean I shouldn't move forward. And it's easy sometimes to to think, well, that's my gut instinct saying I shouldn't be doing this if I feel nervous. But that's not true either. Sometimes it's about facing your fears and moving forward anyway. Awesome. Thank you, Amy. I appreciate that. Next. And the next one is that they don't dwell on the past. And sometimes it can just be a matter of making peace with your past for one reason or another. Maybe something bad happened to you five years ago, or maybe you made a mistake and you just can't quite forgive yourself for it. But it's really important to figure out how do you reflect on the past enough to learn from it without staying stuck there? Because you want to be able to enjoy the present. You want to be able to make your future as good as it can be, but you can't do that if you're always thinking about something that happened a long time ago. Uh, so when... How does the past actually um, help us, maybe? So we're not suggesting the past is always negative, but how, so how do I differentiate that or, or think about that? Yeah, it's, a, it's important to say, you know, how do I learn from it? And I think we often confuse, say, ruminating and with problem solving. So if you're thinking about the past in a way that's helpful and productive, you might be thinking, okay, where did I go wrong? What path did I take? What could I learn from this? versus just replaying something in your head over and over or thinking, I wish that person would have done something different or I wish I would have said something different and sort of fantasizing about how you could have changed the whole course of your life if you just made this one other decision or even thinking, okay, the best days of my life are behind me. I should have done things differently. I see a lot of people who do that too where they think, you know, my life uh, it's pretty much over. I'm too old to, to do anything different. And it's really that kind of thinking that keeps people stuck. No, oh, excellent. Thank you for that. What's your next one? And by the way, Amy, awesome job. Thank you. And <laughs> listeners, she's really sharing a lot of really great strategies uh, for you. So hopefully you're taking notes or listen to this podcast over and over and over. So Amy, what's the next one you have? The next one is that they don't make the same mistakes over and over and over and over. Oh, there we go. <laughs> um, you know, and this one is really just about how often we say things like, I'll never do that again. And then two weeks later, you think, oops, did it again. And 
in my therapy office, I'll see people who will say, I'm never going to get in a bad relationship again, or I'm never going to uh, make that same mistake at work. And then they just can't figure out why they keep doing it, yet they keep moving forward. And although they want to say, I'm just going to move forward, I'm going to leave the past in the past, at the same time, they don't stop and learn, okay, why did I make that mistake? It's painful to think about why we made a mistake. It's easier to blame other people uh, rather than take responsibility. So it's so important to learn from our mistakes because if you don't, we know that you're doomed to repeat them. Mm. So if I, if I have sort of a repetitive behavior, which is, quote, unquote, a mistake, what do you say to your clients as far as trying to release that uh, whole foothold that that mistake has on me? I think just to take some time and, and think, okay, what, why did I do it? Was it, let's say it's, uh, I work with people who say I'm going to lose weight and then they, you know, fall off the wagon. Well, what was it that happened? Did you go to a party and you just felt like you were hungry and you ate all sorts of stuff you thought you shouldn't? Do you tend to snack late at night? Sort of like, what's going on? And it might just be a matter of keeping a, a diary or a journal for a few days and logging your behavior, or it could be just taking a look at the thoughts that you have. Sometimes it only takes a couple of minutes to sabotage ourselves when we're thinking, okay, I, this won't hurt me, or I'll just do this once again, or I don't care anymore. And then we allow ourselves to indulge in things that we shouldn't. So it's really about saying, well, what were my thoughts? What were what led to my behavior? And just taking a little bit of time to figure that out and then coming up with a plan that says, okay, mm -hmm. this is how I'm going to do things differently next time. Well, your example of you know, somebody gets into bad relationships all the time. Sometimes the background is, is they don't necessarily think that they're worthy of yes. a good relationship. And it's just this esteem thing or something like that. So thank you for that insight, Amy. If we look at your number nine. So they don't resent other people's success. And to your point earlier, I think sometimes it's important to look at these things and think, well, is this the, the problem or is this the symptom? Because sometimes we have deeper deeper issues going on and our behavior is simply the symptom. Sometimes our behavior is the problem in itself. And so if we took this one, for example, about resenting other people's success, the deeper rooted issue is we probably don't feel very good about ourselves. And then when we look around at other people, we think, well, that person has more than I do. It's not fair. Uh, that person cheated and lied and got what they got all of these things in life and I can't have that. This isn't fair. But how much envy really keeps us stuck and holds us back? And I think social media makes that even worse. It's mm. so easy to, to flip through social media and it looks like everybody else has a happier life. They have more money. They're enjoying things more. They go on more vacations. And studies will show we tend to feel worse about ourselves after we spend time on social media looking through our friends' activities, whether it's Facebook or Instagram, for that reason that we tend to, tend to feel envious of other people uh, and forget about all the great things we have going on in our own lives. And there's all kinds of research, because we do wellness coaching as well, about how bitterness and resentment just erodes our whole um, immune system, our wellness levels, on it goes, even earlier death for certain individuals if they keep bitterness in their heart. Yeah, it's amazing how much our emotions affect our physical health and our longevity. And I think that's definitely one of those things that a lot of people think, well, it doesn't really hurt me, but it does. Mm, absolutely. Thanks, Amy. Number 10. So they don't give up after the first failure. And obviously, you know, in business, almost every person who's successful has a lengthy history of failures. And for us as individuals to know, how do you bounce back? Failure is embarrassing. It's hard. It's disappointing. It feels terrible. So how do you 
how do you find the strength to keep going after you've failed once? But it's so important to say, okay, what am I going to do differently this time? How am I going to keep moving forward? How do I learn from my failure so that I can do better next time? And it kind of goes hand in hand with not making the same mistakes over and over again. Mm, excellent. And, you know, not giving up is just part of anybody who has been successful. <laughs> right. They see it, the end result after 20 years of trying. So oh, that was easy for Amy. That was easy for Ken. But no, it wasn't. Right. And I think right now there's so many Internet gurus that will tell you, you just have to do this and you'll be rich and famous in no time. And you don't really know the backstory. Yeah, exactly. Number 11. Uh, that they don't fear alone time. And I'll hear from a lot of people who will say, well, oh, I love being alone. I don't fear being alone at all. But then when I ask them, what do you do when you're alone? They'll say, well, I'm texting my friends or I like to listen to the radio. And, and this one is more about being alone with your thoughts and figuring out how do you be comfortable inside your own head. And for a lot of people, that's tough. As a therapist, I was seeing so many people who would say, I have trouble sleeping at night. And then when I talked to them a little bit about that, they would say, well, you know, I'd ask them, how much time do you spend just sitting and thinking during the day? And almost inevitably, the answer was zero because nobody really sits and just thinks. And so we talk about, well, you know, the fact that this is the first time that you're giving your brain an opportunity to work through some of your day and to reflect on things. No wonder you can't sleep. But for a lot of people, it's just so uncomfortable. We emphasize busyness and productivity. And so it just feels like a waste of time. And it's not to say that you need to sit in silence for four hours a day or anything like that, but just setting aside 10 minutes to be alone with your thoughts can be really instrumental in saying, okay, what did I do well today? What do I want to do differently tomorrow? How am I doing on my goals? What are my goals? And just taking the time to really think about that without all of the noise and hustle and bustle going on around you can be key to building your best life. Oh, great. Agreed. You know, this thing called urgency addiction, right? Yes. Go, 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 and not letting, uh, letting go. And then there's all kinds of research that if you do take that 10 or 20 minutes to really have that uh, meditative, reflective, prayerful, whatever word you want to use, time, how that actually does, again, improve your immunity system. It right. And builds your whole body and your well-being. There's definitely studies on that, on how it helps you live longer. Number 12. Is that they don't feel like the world owes them anything. And, of course, when I talk about this, I get a lot of people who will say, it's that younger generation. They all feel like the world owes them something. But I think that if we were honest, we'd say that all of us have probably experienced a time in our life where we thought, okay, I put in a lot of hard work, so now I deserve something good to happen, or I was nice to somebody today, so I deserve nice things to come back to me, but the world doesn't always work like that, and when people mm. keep score, that leads to all of that envy and bitterness and that sort of a thing, too, so to figure out how do you just be a nice person who's giving, and you need to set healthy boundaries for sure, but at the same time, if you always expect things to come back tenfold, you're going to end up being disappointed. Mm. Well, even Adam's book on give and take really verifies that in <laughs> his professorship uh, research about you do get back if you give, but you can't expect it. But you right. also said something about boundaries, is that people who gave to a fault were at, you know, really they, it started to cost them personally, then it wasn't really a positive experience. So uh, good point. Thanks, Amy. Thirteen. Is that they don't expect immediate results. And 
people will say to me sometimes, well, you were an overnight success. You wrote this one article and I have books out, but that's not really how it happened. I wrote lots of articles for a number of years and I don't think that anybody just became an overnight success. And if they did, they probably aren't going to sustain that. We do see some people that have a viral video or something right off the bat, but, but they may have trouble sustaining that. And, but we live in such a fast paced world of no lines and no waiting and you can get anything delivered to your door in just a matter of hours that we start to think that all the things in our life should happen that fast, but that self-growth is much slower. And when you expect it to happen too fast, you'll give up too early. And to know that sometimes the progress doesn't necessarily even come in a straight line. Sometimes you're two steps forward and one step back, but that's okay. It still means you're moving in the right direction and that you can keep growing from that. But you just have to look at, look at the long haul and not expect to feel better tomorrow or next week. Uh, I have a saying called patience work makes its perfect work. So, <laughs> so yes. Uh, so they, uh, yeah, that's right. It's taken, I mean, you, the old, old saying, 10 years to be an overnight success. So right. I still remember my, my personal story, Amy, where when I first got into this industry in my 20s that, you know, I didn't need to take 10 years to be a great speaker and I didn't have to wait like Anthony Robbins did. But guess what? It was 10 years at least. Yeah, I think we all think I'm going to be the, the exception to the rule or there's got to be some shortcuts and I'll figure them out and then I can I can just slide in there, but so often that's not the case. Mm. So when you think about your body of work, Amy, and you know we've covered the 13 uh, items that you have in your book, how can you ex- sort of expand on this to help people around being mentally strong beyond what you've shared with us so far? Well, I think it's so important, first of all, to remember that mental strength is like physical strength. We all have mental strength to a degree. We can all build more. And that it's all about the choices that we make on a daily basis. Sometimes I'll hear people say, well, if you have depression, does that mean you're weak? Not at all. It's two mental health and mental strength aren't the same thing. And I explain it like this. Maybe if you had diabetes, it would be a little tougher to develop physical strength, but you could still do it. It's all about the choices you make every day. Mental strength is the same. It's all about the choices that you make every single day and to say, okay, what did I do today to make myself a little bit stronger than I was yesterday? And again, just like if you wanted to to build physical muscle, you need good habits, but you have to give up the bad habits too. If you're eating too much junk food, then all that progress you're trying to make while running on the treadmill, you end up just kind of, breaking even if you're lucky and so my point in talking about what not to do with mental strength is saying hey this is how to get off the hamster wheel all of your good habits in life could be counteracted by some of these bad habits if you really want to move forward give up these 13 things and we all do them sometimes but just recognizing them and saying okay I'm not going to do these things anymore or I'm going to be aware of them when I'm doing it so that I can stop doing it and it will make all of your good habits in life so much more effective Thank you, Amy. Now, we have about eight or nine minutes left in the show, but before we get into sort of closing remarks, how can people find out about your work and where can they contact you, Amy? My website is the best place, which is Amy Morin, LCSW, as in licensedclinicalsocialworker.com. And I have uh, information about both my books. I have a spinoff of the first book, which was The 13 Things Mentally Strong Parents Don't Do, because so many parents kept asking me, how do we teach kids how to be mentally strong? And I have an online course about mental strength and lots of other free articles and resources on my website as well. Mm, and then do you have a LinkedIn profile people can look at as well? I do. Yes, I do. I think there's a link to it on my website as well. Okay, super, super. So give your website again. 
It's Amy Morin, M-O-R-I-N, LCSW is in licensedclinicalsocialworker.com. And fortunately, I'm pretty sure if you just Google Amy Morin, I'll come up um, right at the top of the list too. Well, it's good to be popular, right? It is. People look at that TEDx uh, talk as well, just to learn a little bit more in there. So, Amy, when we think about you know sort of our last six or seven minutes here, what else can you uh, backfill or add? And I do want to spend a couple of minutes on your new book with because uh, there's some parents that are listening here to help the listeners to just be resilient at the end of the show as far as their strategies. I think one thing is to remember that it's not just for the rough times in life, because usually that's when we think, oh, I should really work on my mental strength, but that's not the time you want to work on it. Once you've already reached this crisis state, it's really hard to then start building mental muscle. It would be like saying, I need to lift this heavy box, so I'm going to go to the gym and lift weights first. It doesn't work like that. You want to make sure that you're building it every single day. And so some of the good habits are fairly simple. It just takes a couple minutes of your time. So, for example, practicing gratitude. And, again, that envy and bitterness causes a lot of uh, problems in our life. But practicing gratitude can be the antidote. You just say, okay, how do I make a list of the things I'm thankful for every day? Identify three things. It could change your life. And then to recognize what are my unhealthy thinking patterns. Do you call yourself names? Do you beat yourself up? Do you convince yourself not to try? The way that you think affects how you feel and how you behave. By changing your thoughts, it can change how much the choices that you're going to make. And so to just be really aware, how do I think and what are the what are the opportunities that I have? It's estimated you have something like 60,000 thoughts a day. So it means you have 60,000 chances to either build yourself up or tear yourself down. And figuring out how do you think realistically, that's a huge component of mental strength is changing your thoughts. And you don't want to be overly positive if you go into every situation thinking, I don't have to prepare, I'm going to nail this. That's not helpful either, but you don't want to walk in thinking I'm a loser and this is never going to work out. You want to have a balanced approach because that affects your choices and your behavior. Absolutely. Thank you very much, Amy, for that. So what are two or three things out of your new book? around parents that are just uh, tidbits and then we're going to force them to buy your book because you don't you're not going to finish it so what are what are a couple of the things that uh, you would share to individuals who are parents or grandparents or uncles or aunts just kind of coaches around things to raise self-assured kids I think one of the big ones is that mentally strong parents don't feel responsible for their kids emotions And it's so easy sometimes when your child is upset to say, okay, I'll calm you down, or when they're bored, we cheer them up, or when they're having a bad day, we make sure that we swoop in and help them. But all of those things, we're not teaching kids how to do it for themselves, and studies will show that. 60% of college students say, I was academically prepared for life after high school, but I wasn't emotionally prepared. I don't know how to deal with loneliness and disappointment and anxiety without my parents there. And it can be one of the biggest predictors of success in life is kids' emotional skills. And you can start teaching it at a young age, but I found that most parents have no idea how to teach it. And in fact, in my book, there's over 100 exercises for parents to do, some for themselves and some to do with their kids and to teach kids from preschoolers all the way up to teenagers. But one of the most interesting things I found was that parents were using a lot of the kid exercises on themselves because they said, nobody ever taught me this, and this is so helpful in my adult life. And it wasn't something I intended when I wrote the book, but I'm so thrilled that parents are now learning this stuff, sometimes for the very first time, right alongside their kids. Well, now that you're equipping the parents, the kids are going to be better off as well. And at Sidebar, my wife actually works in a student success center in the university, 
And it is interesting how those first-year students all of a sudden are just learning some basic life skills. Absolutely. And it's things that, you know, we teach them, we make sure, okay, we want to make sure kids know how to do their laundry and we want to make sure that they can do great in, in math and they're prepared for their calculus class. But then we forget to tell them, how do you deal with frustration? What coping skills work for you when you're angry? And really giving kids a toolbox so that they have the emotional and social skills they need is probably more important than all the other skills combined that we're trying to instill in them before they graduate high school. Mm, awesome. Now, I'll let you share one more from the parent book. Um, let's see. I guess the other one, if I had to pick just one, is that they don't lose sight of their values. And I think it's so easy in today's world to get caught up in the day-to-day -day hustle and bustle of homework and sports and after-school activities that we forget to zoom back out and really look at the big picture and say, what life lessons am I teaching my kids? And so a simple question you might ask yourself is, would I rather that the teacher say my child is the smartest kid in the class or the kindest kid in the class? And really, there's no other right or wrong answer. Either way is fine. But then you might also want to ask your child, would I prefer that this teacher said that you were the smartest kid or that your teacher said you were the kindest kid? And you might be surprised. In studies, almost all the parents said, I want my kid to be the kindest kid. But then when they asked the kids, almost all the kids said, my parents want me to be the smartest kid. So you really want to take a step back and say, am I teaching my kids actually what I think I'm teaching them? If we focus so much on homework and grades and I don't ever talk about how to be kind and generous and empathetic, what is my child taking away about what's important in life? Mm. You know, those life skills when we talk about values and interacting with people and communications and influence and all those things. So thank you for that, Amy. So <clears throat> we're going to give you this last uh, minute or so to wrap up and, and just live leave the best wisdom that you can for the listeners about them really having a resilient and successful life and what would that be from Amy I think the one of the best tips I could give is to just again focus on your thoughts and to change to recognize when you're doubting yourself when you have these thoughts that aren't helpful and to figure out that you're stronger than you think. Sometimes you have to challenge your thinking. How do you challenge your brain? So when your brain says you can't do this, go ahead and try it anyway. And don't be afraid to prove yourself wrong. And every time you do that, you can physically change your brain. Your brain will start to see you in a, in a different light. And when every time you say, okay, I didn't think I could do this, but I could, it'll start to, your brain will start to say, okay, you're more capable, you're more competent, and you'll actually start to think differently. Well, Amy, thank you for, for spending time with the Secrets of Success uh, listeners today. It was just a pleasure to have you. Thank you. It was fun to be here. <laughs> well, everybody, uh, thank you again. It's Amy Morin, and her book is 13 Things Mentally Strong People Don't Do. Go online, look up her TED Talk, and uh, get that all figured out. Listen to this podcast several times because there's over 13 things we left for you to consider to do. Now, don't try to do them all. Start with one item and then progress with it. Now, as we end just about every show, we thank you for sharing your most precious commodity, which is your time with us today. If you like what we're doing, please share, uh, leave some positive comments, let other people know about the secrets of success. And also, Go to CRG and we have the resources there to be able to learn about yourself and your personality and your self-worth and your values so that you can go to the next level. Thank you for listening to the Secrets of Success podcast. I'm your host, Dr. Ken Keyes. 
thanks for exploring the secrets of success with us. If you want to keep the momentum going, log on to crgleader.com. Scroll to the bottom and sign up for our inspirational emails. You can also take your success to the next level by following us on Facebook and Twitter and connecting with Ken on LinkedIn. We hope you have a great week and look forward to you joining us next time for the Secrets of Success podcast with Dr. Ken Keyes.